Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 11th of February 2018, entitled, A Pattern to Greatness. And the Bible reading is taken from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. The book of Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 there. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Father, thank you again for our time together this evening. Thank you, Lord, that we can be found in your house. Thank you for each one, Lord, that has made the point to be here this evening and gathered here as we gather in your name. Thank you for your word that's before us and your spirit that's within us. And we just pray now that as we look into your word for these next moments together, Lord, I pray that you would just give us that which you would have spoken here this evening. Speak to our hearts that which we most need. Meet every need as only you can. And we'll give you all the praise and thanks for it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Any church that you would go into, regardless of whether it's small or whether it's large, churches are going to have their strengths and they're going to have their, their weaknesses. Of course, we see that made very clear if we look into the book of, of, of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters that were written to the seven churches of, of, of Asia there, we find that these churches were both being commended for the things that were good in them but they were also being warned against the things that were bad, the weaknesses that needed to, to be corrected. We see in many of the epistles that are written in the New Testament that are written to the New Testament church, many times they are being commended for the things that are good. At the same time, they're being corrected for the weaknesses that they find there. And here in this, this letter to, uh, uh, to Philippi, uh, we find that it, it seems that there's a, a weak spot in this church that uh, uh, somehow there was maybe a lack of 
the harmony that ought to be there between the brothers and sisters in Christ. There's three times in this letter that the, the Apostle Paul is exhorting this church to unity, to meekness, and to joy. There must have been a reason for that as he was writing this letter to them. And, of course, the implication as we read through it is that there was some undisciplined living, just as we find to the church that was written or the letter that was written to the church at Corinth. There was a lot of undisciplined living that was going on in the church, and there seems to have been some of that here. And they were being reproved not because that there was doctrinal error, uh, there's nothing said here about them being wrong in the teachings and the doctrines that they, that they held to, but for the way that they were living their lives, uh, for a careless lifestyle, if you would. And, and, and I think that that's one of the things that we find that can be found very common in churches of, of our day, that even where you're in a church where the, the doctrines are right and the teachings are what they ought to be from, from the Word of God, we don't always make application to those things in our lives. We don't always live according to the things that we are being taught. And, of course, this, this church here is, is literally being, being reminded that they need to be in, in, in one accord, in, in, in one mind, uh, because that's the only way that any church is ever going to, uh, to be strong. Uh, one of those times is in, in the uh, first five verses of our, of our reading here, uh, that uh, he is going through this, fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same joy, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Let not every man, uh, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, he goes on to share with us that, that mind. If you look back in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you look over just a bit further in the letter in chapter 4, we find also, he says in verse 1, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntech that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fella, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life, rejoice in the Lord alway. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. This theme tends to, to run right through this book, that this church seemed to be sound in their doctrine. But it was the relationships between them that was the problem, and that's how that that the devil was getting to them. And, of course, the devil loves to divide. And sometimes there's times when we know that we're standing, if there's division, it ought to be over the truth. Well, these people weren't 
dividing over one being right and one being wrong, the truth being taught and, and somebody being in false doctrine. That's not the divisions that are coming here. The divisions between them seem to be on a more personal level of how they were treating each other and living more selfishly for their own needs rather than putting their brothers and sisters in Christ before each other. Um, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, we find that the Bible says here, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, capital S, of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. And, of course, if you look before that, you'll find the lowliness of, of, of mind and everything, just like he's talked about here. You see, when there is not concord, then there's going to be discord. There, it, it's going to be one way or the other. Either we're all in one accord well, there's going to be discord. If there isn't harmony, there's going to be disharmony. It seems that these people were believing the right thing, but it was their behavior that was wrong, not their beliefs, but the way that they were behaving in their Christian life. It's very possible for those who are sound in the doctrine to fail to make that teaching, if you would, about our Lord as attractive as it ought to be. Titus chapter 2 verse 10 says, Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. There's a little verse sometimes that, if you'll notice it, it's out on our, our, our board out front, um, and uh, uh, there's one that we put uh, uh, in, the, in the bulletin. It's right there after the welcome every uh, every Sunday, Second Corinthians 4, 5, for we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. And that should be us. What we, are, we should not be magnifying ourselves in this place. We should be magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are servants to others. Another passage, another text that we've got up on our sign out front says, speaking the truth in love. There is never a reason to turn away from the truth. There is no reason to compromise the truth. God's truth is truth, but we need to stand upon it. But we need to stand upon it in the right spirit. It doesn't matter how firm that we stand on the right doctrines and the right truth. If there's discord, if there's not that unity of heart, if we're not striving for Jesus Christ to be the main thing in everything that we do, if we're not striving for him to one, the one to be magnified and glorified, what is the reason for the presence of this hindering that seems to be in this church here and that can be found in so many churches today? That even though they're standing on the truth, that truth doesn't seem to be getting through to others. Well, I think there's, there's, there's two words that I've put down here which seem to be their problem, which I think is a problem with almost all of us as human beings. The first one is S-E-L-F self. Uh, every time uh, when you allow self to get in the way, you know, our righteousness is filthy rags. There's nothing pretty about us. And self tends to manifest itself in very ugly ways a lot of time. When it gets down to about me and about what I want and about how that I want things, then it's going to cause problems and discord every time. The other one is one that is brought out very clear in the scripture here. 
And that's P-R-I-D-E, pride. It appears that some of these Philippian Christians were, were just self-centered and, and proud, and Paul was appealing to them to change their lifestyles. It's like, you know, we talk about so many times, I heard it put this way one time that, you know, a lot of people like to have their philosophies about this and their philosophies about that, but what is philosophy? Philosophy really is a search for truth. But once you find the truth, it's no longer philosophy, it's truth. So philosophy is an endless circle. I mean, you can never ever, because philosophy is searching for something else, and when you find that something else, it's no longer philosophical, it's truth. But it's very much the same thing with this, with this pride problem that we have. I've heard it said, and it's been put in several different ways, but, you know, when you know that you found humility and you can be proud of it, you just lost it. <laughs> and that's the problem a lot of times. If we're not careful, even when we think that we're getting a hold on it, we'll start being proud of ourselves because we've arrived and we've got this thing down pat, and it just went out the window again because that pride has, has slipped in. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, beginning in verse 1, he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. You know, sometimes... People get their feelings hurt in church because somebody else got the job that they wanted to do. Uh, sometimes people get the feeling that uh, one position is more important than the other position. But everything that we're taught in Scripture is so contrary to that. The truth is, is, is that it's the ones that are the greatest servants, the ones that may have that position that carries the greatest responsibility, should be the greatest servants among them. They should be serving the others. It's not a position to be, to be proud of because I'm a pastor or I'm an elder or I'm a deacon or I'm a this or I'm a that or, or anything else. We're all one body. We're all in, 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 in one accord. The secret of, of harmony, the secret, secret of being in, in one mind and, and one accord is humility. It's humility. We find that the simple thought this evening, if, 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 if you put a title to, to these thoughts, is a pattern for greatness. If we want to be a great church, we can be, an, we can be a bad church. I mean, we can be a terrible church if you want to. Uh, it doesn't, we don't have to do too much to do it, just be ourselves. And we'll, we'll be, you know, just, a, just, just an ugly church that nobody wants to be a part of that's not accomplishing anything for God. Um, or we can choose to be a great church. But it's the same in our Christian walk. How many of you want to be the biggest failure that ever walked the face of the earth? You want to stand before God one day and say, I gave you every opportunity, but you were the worst Christian of the whole lot down there. 
How many of you would like for the Lord to look at you as somebody mentioned this morning? I think it was maybe in, in, in the prayer. Uh, well done, my good and faithful servant. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing is, is that it's the, it's the whole attitude. Do we want to be a great church so that we can show people how great we are? Or do we want to be a great church so that people know how great that Jesus is? Do we want to be a great Christian so that we can show everybody that we're so spiritual? I mean, we got it down pat. We are such a good Christian. Or do we want to be a great Christian so that people can see Christ and how great that he is? I'm reminded of a sermon, I guess, again, one of my favorite preachers of all time was, of course, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and how God took that, that young green young lad that, uh, uh, that came from nowhere and, 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 and God made him into such a great preacher. And yet the amazing thing is if you read about Charles Haddon Spurgeon is that after most of the time that he stood in a pulpit and preached to 5,000-plus people or whatever, after so many people come to know Jesus Christ as, as Lord and Savior, that more times than not, he would go back home and he would be found weeping in his wife's lap because he had failed God so miserably. <laughs> he never saw himself as a great preacher. Matter of fact, it's, 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 it's in, in many of his biographies that, that he considered himself to be such a failure. He considered himself to do such a bad job of what he was doing. Then I'm also reminded of two men that were visiting London and they wanted to hear some of the great preachers that were there. And, of course, C.H. Spurgeon was one of them. And, of course, they'd gone, I think, on the, the Sunday morning and they'd heard this great thing and they'd come out and, you know, man, that guy's really got it. He's such a great preacher. But Sunday evening they went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and they came out afterwards and one looked at the other and said, wow, how great is that Jesus that he was talking about? You see, we're talking about greatness but we're not talking about greatness in ourselves. We're talking about that the, the key to real greatness is through our humility, that we want him to be great. We want our church to be great so that people can see Jesus, not so they can see who's in the pulpit or who's leading the music or who's doing this or who's doing that, but that in everything together we're just one body, and the body that they see is the body of Jesus Christ. He's the one that's being magnified. That's not an easy task because you and me and everybody else here, we have to deal with these two things in our lives because of our old carnal flesh. We have to deal with self over and over again. We have to deal with this thing called pride because we like for somebody to appreciate what we've done and give us that little pat on the back and, and tell us what a great job it was. And that's unfortunately something that we have to deal with time and time again. You see, the first thing that we, that we see in our, in our passage here in Philippians chapter 2 is in these first four verses that we just read. Listen to that again. If there, if there be therefore any consolation. And this is one of the passages. This is one of the passages that I think has such an impact on the way we live our lives if we can grasp it. It's one of the passages that I still remember when we had the Christian school here for all those years, it was one of the passages that the students were required to memorize. 
because this was a way that they needed to be living their lives. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. You're going to have to be in one accord if this is going to be. If you're going to know this fellowship, if you're going to know this comfort of love, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, does that mean that we're going to all like the same color? You know, there's probably more churches that have had more fights over what color paint they were going to put on the wall or what color carpet they were going to put down or whether they were going to buy these chairs or that chairs or all these things that really are so irrelevant to everything that we're doing than over the doctrines of Scripture. People get their own ideas. He says, hey, if you're going to know these things, then you're going to have to be like-minded. We won't agree on all those details, but what does he mean? Well, he goes on to explain let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Don't do it because you dislike somebody and don't do it so that you can feel proud. You know, we do it for these ulterior motives that are totally wrong when we try to accomplish things for those reasons. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That simply means it's more important to you right now that the person sitting behind, beside you and behind you, and in front of you, wherever they are, that they're the ones that are happy, that they're the ones that have that peace, that they're the ones that are being blessed. And so many times somebody gets such a great blessing, and the natural thing with somebody, you know, they're upset because they got the blessing and, 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 and I didn't. You know, man, I deserved that more than they did. I mean, man, I've been, I've been really trying to, to do what's right, and, and look at this. The Bible's saying, Always put the other person first. You want to be in one mind and one accord? Quit looking at yourself. Esteem the other one above yourself. But every man also, look at and look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We talked about this this morning during the adult Bible study time. We talked about this, this very thing. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others of others. You know, one of, one of the things, the positions that we have to get to in our Christian life is it really matters more to us about the other person than it does about me. He says here, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the first four verses are really an exhortation. It's something that we need to heed, that we need to listen to. An exhortation is something that is given you to try to lift you up. It's an exhortation to unity, to meekness, to humility. That's what he's striving for us. And they speak for themselves. Does it seem hard? Well, notice that after exhorting the believers, he reminds them of this vital that, yes, this is an exhortation that they need to heed, but there's an example to follow. An exhortation to live in unity, to have one mind and one accord, but he gives us the greatest example in all the world to follow. If you want to find greatness, if you want a pattern for greatness, there is no greater pattern than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is our pattern. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I've heard people take this verse and they they want to take this verse and make me as smart as Jesus was. 
Folks, that's not what the Bible, that's totally out of context here. Jesus will give you things. He will teach you through the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll give you understanding that the flesh will never grasp. That's not what this verse is about. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, what mind? The one that being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verse 5 here is the key to everything that he's talking about. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus what is your attitude? He was willing. He was equal with God. It was not robbery because, because he was God. He was the creator of the universe. And yet he was willing as the creator of the universe rather than to hold that position over you. He was willing to humble himself and come as a man and come as a servant and allow them to nail him to that cross and take his life and be totally humiliated before this world before the very people that he was giving his life for. Let this mind be in you. Unfortunately, too many Christians don't know enough about how Jesus acted. <laughs> they don't know enough about what he did in general to know what it is to have the mind of Christ, to allow him to be their example, to try to pattern our lives after him. You know, some people only want to accept him as a great example. There's a lot of people out there, even of false religions, that accept that Jesus Christ was a great man. They even accept that he taught some great things. They even accept the fact that he lived a life that was an example to others. But they don't see him as God. And yet we that know him for who he was and know that he is the God of the universe and know that he humbled himself to come to this earth so many times, we take him as less of a pattern. He didn't come just to be those things, but he was those things, all of those things to us. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Humility personified. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You see, why did Jesus do what he did? Jesus did it because he loved you so much. He's telling us here, though, to take that yoke. That yoke is what you put on the oxen in order to, to guide them, to lead them, to take them in the direction that they, they want to go. He says, let me guide your life. Let me be your example. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn the things that I've taught you. I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. As God the Father, God the Father, you can't see him. He was a spirit. That can only mean that Jesus Christ was and is himself God, who being in the form of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. He was God himself when he came. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You see, 
He didn't consider being equal with God. <laughs> he didn't consider that wrong because he was God. It was absolutely nothing for him to be God because he was God. He wasn't taking something to himself that didn't belong to him when he was. There's only one Godhead, and Jesus Christ is part of that. And we could, we could look at so many passages, but just a, just a couple in, in the Gospel of John chapter 5. The Gospel of John chapter 5. Notice what he says here in verse 18. It says in John chapter 5, verse 8, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him because of the fact that there is no doubt. Some say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, they haven't read their Bible very carefully. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. They wanted to literally kill him because it's him making himself equal to God. Down in verse 23 of that same chapter, he says, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. You can't honor God the Father without honoring God the Son. People want to make their own ways. They want to say that he's not who he is, that he's just another person, maybe a good person. In chapter 10, verse 33, he tells us this. Chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They thought it was blasphemy because that he was claiming to be God. Verses 7 and 8, he goes on, But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's really almost beyond our comprehension how much that Jesus, being God, the previous verses state, how that he was willing to make himself of no reputation. To make himself of no reputation. Now, that doesn't mean that he divested himself of his divinity. It doesn't mean that he stopped being God when he became man. But it does mean that he voluntarily laid aside his glory. He took off those royal robes and he came down alongside of you. He could have stayed up on the throne in his robes and his crown but he was willing to lay those things aside. He didn't quit being God because he did, but he was willing to condescend to our level. Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in him and Jesus Christ. Jesus couldn't be more God. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, bodily, in his body form. He never stopped being who he was. But he took upon him the form of a servant, the very nature of a servant. Compare the, the, the form of God in verse 6 with the form of a servant. <laughs> he thought it not robbery, and yet here, the form of God, he takes on the form of a servant. You look over in, into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Notice what, what the Bible says down in verse 45. 
It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this is interesting because we know that the scenes that we have in heaven before the throne, we're worshiping him. We're worshiping him. But he didn't come to this earth for us to do something for him. He came to this earth to minister to us, to do something for us. And we find that he took upon himself the form of a servant in, in, in the gospel of, of, uh, of, of John, uh, chapter 13. The Bible tells us there in verse 3, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Here he is, the king of glory. But he's willing. He was the one amongst all of them that you would think would be the one that everybody else would be serving. But yet, he laid aside his garments. He took the cloth. He took the bowl. He began to wash their feet. And, of course, we know that was a servant's job. We know they walked those dusty trails. They didn't have the tarmac that we got. They didn't get in and out of the car. They walked in their sandals, and they had dirty feet when they went into the homes. Jesus humbled himself down to wash the dirt from their feet. He took the lowest position. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. One of my favorite books, of course, the book of Romans, chapter 8, puts it this way in verse 3. He says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He manifest himself, God manifest himself in the likeness of man. Truly God, but truly man. We've talked about that even in our study on who is God that we've gone through for many, many weeks on Sunday mornings. We'll never be able to fully understand, let alone explain the triunity of our God, the Trinity as it is. We know it because the Word of God teaches it. We don't have anything else to compare it to. There is nothing in this world like it. We can search for illustrations and pull them from everywhere, but the truth is there's nothing like God. Oh, we're body, soul, and spirit, and there's all kind of things that we can look, but none of them fully, truly give us the reality of who God is in his triunity. You see, Jesus made himself of no reputation he took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man, though he was God. He was made in the likeness of man, being found in fashion as a man. You see, he looked like a man, being found in fashion as a man. He had flesh and blood and bones just like the rest of us. He was born as that baby in a manger, and he grew up in that home, and then he worked in his dad's carpenter shop, and he did all those things uh, as a real human being. The Bible teaches us, teaches us that he became hungry and he ate food just like everybody else. The devil even took him to the, to the, to the high peak and he, and he tempted him, tempted in all points like as you are yet without sin. He took him up there and said, look what I'll give you. Look what I'll give you. 
You see, the Bible teaches us that he got tired. We can look at all these passages that we don't have to. He felt like a human. He walked like a human. He looked like a human. He was human, even though he was God. He was God in the flesh. He humbled himself, the God of the universe, to come and be in the flesh and to serve you and I. He humbled himself. We know that he was literally could not have been born in more humble surroundings. <laughs> there wasn't even a, a room or a bed in the inn for him. He had to be laid in the manger with the animals in, 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 in the stable when he came into this earth. He was wrapped in rags, and he was laid in that manger. He lived, and the Bible tells us that he was despised. He worked as a humble trade. Even as he began to minister, the Bible says he had nowhere to lay his head. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't search for things in this life. We were talking this morning again about that passage of God promising to supply all of our needs. The problem is most of us in the West, I don't care if you come from Great Britain or the United States or any of the Western European nations, most of us don't really know what needs are. Most of the world out there, if they had what we do when we feel like that we're at our worst, I said how humbled I was. When we made the mission trip to Kenya, and we saw these people with next to nothing. And yet, they seemed more happy and more content with what they had than what we do. We've got so much. God will supply our needs. But most of us don't understand what needs really are. What I want you to recognize and realize is that when Jesus Christ, he was not concerned with the comforts of this world. He didn't have a home to go home to every night. He didn't have somewhere to lay his head. His focus was to do the work of the Father that he came to do. God, in the flesh, spending all of his life serving us, doing what he needed to do to give us life. It says he became obedient to death. You know, you try to think this. Did Jesus have to die on the cross? You know, even there in the garden, when his sweat became as great drops of blood, when he literally prayed to the Father, you know, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Don't think for a moment that because he was God, he didn't feel everything in the flesh that he came to encapsulate for us. He felt it. He knew it. Did he have to die on the cross? He had to die on the cross because, as he said, when he explained it to his apostles, he came to fulfill everything that God had said about him, everything that was written in the law, the prophets, everything that was written in the Word of God. Because, you see, as part of that triune God, he was there when the plan was laid. He didn't have to die on the cross because any man took his life from him. He didn't have to die there because they got the best of him. They got the upper hand on him. He died because of who he was and because of his love for you. God could not break his promise. He was God. As man, he felt it all. But he there, he humbled himself even to death. 
He allowed them to humiliate him. The one These people wouldn't even have a breath without him. And yet, he allowed them to rip his garments off him, to hang him on that cross, to hang him in, in, in the most despised way that the, the criminals' lives were taken from them. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Even, you see, he came into this earth in the most humble means that anybody could surely ever enter this world. <laughs> and when he left this world, he left in the most humiliating death that they could put upon him. Do you realize that's why the Romans invented crucifixion? Because it was so hideously painful. Because it was so degrading. Because it was so humiliating. And yet, do we realize this? That in the Old Testament... His crucifixion was already being prophesied before that kind of death was even invented yet. Before the Romans had had time to come up with it. But he was there. Even the death of the cross. Even the most degrading and shameful death known. Yet, he willingly submitted himself to that. And, you know, in Hebrews Chapter 12, the Word of God says this in verse 2. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it started with him and it finished with him. He planned it from the beginning and he fulfilled it when he died upon the cross. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't think for a moment that he didn't feel the degradation that he faced on that cross. Don't think for a moment that though he never, ever ceased being God, uh, that he was any less man, uh, that he didn't feel everything that they did to him when he was there, and yet he willingly Submitted it because of the joy that was set before him. Because he loved you so much. Because he could see your salvation. He came down this lowly earth. We have an exhortation that we need to heed that he gives us in the first. We have the example that we need to follow. I don't want to give you this in closing. We have an exaltation that we need to behold. You see, he goes on. In verses 9 to 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself to the lowest, but God lifted him to the highest. His exaltation is something that we need to behold and we need to, to look upon him and we need to see him. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. God exalted him to the highest place possible, given him a name which is above every name. In Ephesians, the book just before this one, chapter 1, and verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of, of his power to usward who believe according to the workings 
of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Folks, it goes against everything this world thinks, everything this world believes. You want to be great? You want to be part of a great church? And you start by trying to become the lowest, trying to become the servant, trying to put everybody else and their needs before your own. That's what Jesus Christ did. And it was only when he humbled himself to the lowest that God the Father lifted him to the highest. You see, every believer, the only way that we can first come to know Christ in the first place is by humbling ourselves as a sinner. It all comes to the heart. You can never come to God. You can never be saved with a proud heart. He resisteth the proud. We saw that earlier. We have to humble ourselves as sinners. We have to call upon his mercy and his grace. We have to look to him for something that we totally don't deserve. But with Jesus, one day even his enemies will bow in recognition of who he is. I know the world may see us as those that don't have any better sense, <laughs> as those that need a crutch, as those that don't have the real wisdom and the real truth. And they'll try to convince you of that, and if you're not careful, they'll have an impact on doing it. But he says, let this mind be in you. These last two verses tell you how that is. You say, this is the enabling. This is where it's going to come from. He says in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It all ties together. It's the power of of that indwelling presence, the power of the inspired word that so often just lays there and it's not used. It doesn't to give us the power that we need. We need to, to live and honor him by allowing the power within us to do the living that we can't do for ourselves. You see, I don't think that being a great church has to do with how many seats are filled. I don't think being a great church has to do with the programs and the things that we do. God knows we want to be a blessing. We want to minister. But that's not where greatness. So many people see a great church because they've got thousands of people or because they've got all these programs, because they've got all these things that they can do. That's not what makes a great church. The greatness will come when Jesus Christ is seen in our midst. He came to accomplish the work. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. I've said it so many times. You'd probably be sick of me saying it before I quit saying it as well. You are here for one person if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, the one purpose for your life is that you become a believer, that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are a believer, the one purpose for your life above everything else is that the work of Jesus Christ can be carried on through you. Let this mind 
be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that we be willing to humble ourselves the way that he did. If we're going to be in one mind, in one accord, it'll never come through self and it'll never come through pride. It'll only come through humility when we're willing to take the lowest position, when we're willing to take the servant's job, when we're willing to do that which nobody else wants to do even, when we're willing to esteem others better than ourselves, when we're willing to look not on our needs and our wants and our things, but upon the other individuals God can give us when we have that mind that Jesus Christ had, when we operate the way that he shows us as our great example here, then we, we can be great in God's eyes, though we may never be great in this world. And we can be a great church because they're going to see Jesus Christ here and not just a whole bunch of people that are maybe bickering over this, that, and the other. So I trust and pray that this can be a, a blessing to you this evening that you can take these and just realize that, that there is a way to be great, but not as the world tells you, the way to be great in God's eyes. And there is a way that we can have a great church, not just an ordinary church, not a bad church, not just a mediocre church, but a great church because we start allowing Jesus Christ to be our example. We have the mind of Christ in us. We take him as our example. We live our lives according to him and allow that to be a witness to others. Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord, for this thought that we've looked at in Scripture. And Lord, we know that we've just, just skimmed the surface. But Father, I pray that you'd help us to realize that, Lord, you've exalted us to be of one mind, of one accord. Lord, you've given us the greatest example that we could possibly ever have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we realize that when we begin to look at these things, we think that, wow, it's impossible with us. And Lord, it is impossible with us. But that which is impossible with man is possible to you. Because, you see, we can look to him. He's the one that's exalted. He's the one that his name is above all names. But look what he was willing to do. And, Lord, you've empowered us within because of the spirit that lives and dwells within us. Help us, Lord, not just to hear these words and, and let them or just go into our memory and never be dealt with, but, Lord, help us, help us to live them. Help us to take them to heart. Help us to determine, to allow Christ to be the utmost in everything that we do in our lives, and that we take the same attitude that he did towards those around us. Of course, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.